Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book, This week, I'm pleased to say we have David Farber on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Rise and Fall of American Conservatism, A Short History. I think most people, and particularly people on the left, assume that Republican means conservative. These people obviously have not read David's terrific new book because they are, in a sense, really quite different. We associate conservatism today in the United States with something more than the maintenance of the status quo. That is certainly an element of conservatism, but it is not the entire thing especially as it manifested itself in the post-war years. The kind of family value-centric, hawkish on military affairs, pro-religious, states' rights-loving, constitutional literalism that we now associate with conservatism is, in fact, a relatively recent phenomenon. And it was not the dominant force in the Republican Party until quite recently, probably the 80s. David does a good job of telling the story about how these large C conservatives took over the Republican Party, and he does so through presenting a series of short biographical sketches of the principal leaders of the large C conservative movement. That is, people like Robert Taft, William Buckley, Barry Goldwater, Phyllis Schlafly, Ronald Reagan, and finally George W. Bush. It's a terrific device, and it makes the book wonderfully readable, and I really suggest that you read it. I enjoyed talking to David today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, David. Hi, good to be with you. Thank you for being with us. I should tell our listeners that we have David Farber on the show today, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, The Rise and Fall of Modern American Conservatism, A Short History. I like the book very, very much. It uses a device that I always admire in books about politics, and that is it takes you through the narrative by means of introducing a series of vignettes about the people, the leaders of, in this case, the modern American conservative movement. So it is constructed out of these, as I say, pithy vignettes about people who are really very interesting. And David has a talent for this kind of thing, and he makes these people who, again, are intrinsically interesting even more interesting and connects them to a very large and uh, extraordinarily significant theme, um, which, as I say, is the rise of modern American conservatism. Uh, Let me begin by asking you, David, to tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. I've been a historian for, it seems, forever. I got my Ph.D. from the University of Chicago back in 1985 and have done a variety of different books, several different books, and sort of made my bones as a historian writing about social change movements in the 1960s, but became increasingly interested in the other side, conservatives, and have written now a fair amount about that subject as well. Mm-hmm. And um, how did you come to write uh, this particular book? Well, like I say, I I think like so many historians who do U.S. history, the narrative we focused on for, gosh, more than a generation, a quarter of a century already, has really been about the struggle for equality and have looked at groups like African Americans or women, gay Americans or people who've had to fight their way inside the system. And that's a critically important story. It's, It's a powerful story. But to some extent, Americanists have looked too narrowly, perhaps, at the trajectory of America's lives in the last century, at any rate, because you could also make a pretty good case that over the last 50 years or so, there's been a conservative ascendancy that in some ways has trumped or at least battled with great effect that other side, that liberal side, that struggle for equality. So I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to think about that arc of American history as well. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, you've done it better than uh, anyone I've ever read, and I'm not I'm not just blowing smoke here. I really I really do think you've done a terrific job. Well, um, thank you. Let me uh, let me begin by asking about some definitions because I think there's a lot of confusion about this. Uh, w- what does conservative mean? And in the title of your book, you don't say exactly conservative. You say modern American conservatism. 
But what is conservative and what is modern American conservatism? Well, I'm a historian, and what we do for a living is essentially say that things change over time. <laughs> Conservatism is, is a reification. Conservatives is a reification. There's no such thing in real life. It's something that changes over time. People battle over what it means. We're, we're seeing that right now in American politics. Our Tea Party uh, fans, the true conservatives, our old-style liberal who believe in government keeping its hands off the economy, conservatives. It, it's a moving target. And what I look at in this book is the struggle to define conservatism, to create a politics of conservatism. And one of the things I note is that really before the 1930s, it was a very rare politician or American intellectual that embraced the idea of being a conservative or that there was such a thing as American conservatism. So it's a relatively new invention in the American political lexicon, and it's a moving target. Nonetheless, you know, as we talk, we can figure out what yeah. people have meant by the phrase conservatism, how they've struggle over a few core ideas about what conservatism should be. Yeah, I think that's an excellent characterization. I think one difficulty in talking about these things is people tend to associate republicanism or uh, the Republican Party, I guess we should say, with conservatism and especially a particular kind of conservatism. But one of the themes in your book is that they are actually quite different and that one of the kinds of conservatism that we talk about today uh, is actually quite recent in its ascendancy in the Republican Party. Um, Actually, that's a good segue into talking about the first person you deal with, someone about whom I knew literally nothing, and I am ashamed to say this because he was much more important than I knew, and that is Robert Taft. Why don't you tell us about Robert Taft, and I guess he was, in your book, the first modern American conservative. Yeah, it seems to me he was a good place to start because he was like many American politicians who were dedicated to the idea that the government should more or less keep its hands off the free market. Uh, a person who thought of himself, remember this is the 1930s, as, wait for it, a liberal. And he thought he was a liberal because in the 19th century or in England at that exact same time, a liberal was someone who believed that government should play a limited role in supervising, policing, intervening in the free market. That liberals were those who believed that there should be limited attempts to restrain liberty of all kinds by any powerful institution. So he thought he was a liberal, and he was shocked when Franklin Roosevelt got on the radio and told the American people, well, actually, liberalism is now something different. And Roosevelt gave a famous speech where he redefined liberalism for the 20th century. And Taft literally responded with, with, with incredible anger and hostility. He felt like his, his label, the, the man he thought he was, was being stolen away by this usurper, Franklin Roosevelt, and he, he fished around for a long time. Should he, should he go British and call himself a Tory? Should he, he didn't know what to call himself. And eventually he, by 1938, decided, okay, I guess if I'm not a liberal anymore, I'm a conservative. And he began to bandy around the term and convince other people who believed as he did that that was the best way to think about themselves. Now, much of the uh, origin of, I guess, m this aspect that liberal economic, I guess we'd call it classical conservative element of conservatism, modern American conservatism, is born in the uh, difficulties or troubles I think people had with the New Deal. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the way that many Americans, not necessarily conservative, but many Americans felt about the New Deal. And this is, I think, something that is largely lost in, in our discussion of the New Deal today because people look at it as if, as if it was something that kind of came down from heaven, uh, mm -hmm. born by Roosevelt himself, and was absolutely the right thing to do, and nobody opposed it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I, I mean, Americans of all kinds have long had an ambivalent relationship to government intervention in the economy. And this goes back to the founding documents. And the founding documents, the Constitution, as Tea Party advocates will tell you over and over again, does enshrine private property pretty powerfully in the American political system, and they're right to think that's the case. In some ways, you can make a case retrospectively that the Constitution is a conservative document in that one <laughs> sense. Certainly, some famous American historians have made that case. So there has been, at least relative to many European countries, more constraint on government intervention in the economy. You could say that that's an American tradition, contested, fought over, limits defined and argued about endlessly. 
But in 1929, when the stock market crashed, and by 1931, when America had about a 25% unemployment problem, think about that, we have 9.6 now and we're falling apart, 25% unemployment, Roosevelt and others really just searching almost without any clear plan or purpose or philosophical certainties, decided that there was going to be a need for government intervention in a way that had been, I think, fair to say unprecedented in American history to resolve the crisis of capitalism. The United States and many other countries around the world were suffering. So we get the modern New Deal state taking place in the 1930s. And again, nowadays, we, we tend to take many of these programs for granted that banks should be insured by the federal government, that there should be some sort of federal social safety net for the unemployed or those without resources. This was a big change. And our friend, Senator Robert Taft, did not think this was a good direction for the American people to take. And he began to try to find alternatives. And is he the um, first American politician to hit on the strategy? And I ask this question out of ignorance. It's probably in the book. Hit on the strategy of associating um, these sorts of New Deal programs with um, socialism? Well, in some ways, it goes back to the early years of the 20th century when, again, during the so-called progressive era, presidents like Theodore Roosevelt, even Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson, who I guess Glenn Beck treats as the devil incarnate, (laughs) all of these presidents, Republican and Democrat, it's worth thinking, argued that there needed to be some intervention in the economy to safeguard workers and prevent all sorts of deviltry from occurring. And... At that point, some business circles began to narrow the differences between, in some ways, a kind of regulatory capitalism and the Bolshevik Revolution taking place in the Soviet Union at roughly the same time. Uh, This was a stretch at the time. And so that kind of discourse, that kind of uh, putting anything to the left of wide-open free market capitalism became something available to people to call on. Taft, though, becomes a major politician in the 1930s, who, who uses that kind of rhetoric to attack the New Deal and, and you know, frankly, to try to mm, frighten some Americans into reconsidering what was becoming conventional wisdom. I want to spend just a second sketching the political landscape because, in a sense, what you say in the book, and I think this is correct, is that Taft opens up a new space or creates a new faction. So uh, talk a little bit about, the, again, the the kind of demographic cohorts or political cohorts are involved. And here I'm thinking of, uh, that is, Southerners who at the time were Democratic and thought they were always going to be Democratic. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, these people that you call, and this was an interesting phrase, I'm not an American historian, the Republican internationalist. That -hmm. was curious to me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just the political landscape and these various regional groups. Yeah, we could probably start with trying to create some kind of diagram and thinking through that all Democrats aren't liberal in the 1930s and still today, all Republicans aren't conservative, certainly not in the 1930s and to some extent not today. And then trying to figure out how the two parties eventually line up with the two rough ideologies. And certainly in the 1930s, Taft was fighting inside the Republican Party to cast it as, at least in economic terms, an anti-liberal party or a conservative party. But there were many... uh, Republicans who, who, who essentially agreed with many of the aspects of the New Deal and the Republican Party was split over some of these issues and constituencies were split. Pretty much anybody who felt themselves a victim of the economic downturn of the 1930s, small farmers, small manufacturers, as well as many working people of all kinds, tended to side with the New Deal. Mostly those who held on to what Taft was promulgating, were property interests of one kind or another, the well-to-do, the successful, what today we might call so-called country club Republicans, and people with some kind of stake in the status quo. Yeah, you talk a little bit later in the book about Sam Irvin, who is somebody, he's one of the earliest politicians I'd remember because of the role that he played in the Watergate hearings. I didn't know anything about him until I really read your book. Uh, But you say that he was one of the last people who thought of the Republican Party as the party of Lincoln. And is that the way most um, Southerners thought about the Republican Party in the 1930s and 40s, the party of Lincoln? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we're having all sorts of interesting shakeouts over the last 40 years, so it's hard to remember how people identified in partisan terms before that time. Yeah, absolutely remember that the South, which had disenfranchised African Americans by the 1890s, was from the 1890s, really through much of the 1960s, a one-party region. And that party was the Democrats. And it was still kind of waving the bloody flag of the Civil War. Republicans stood for Lincoln, stood for the Union, stood for the deaths of fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers. And even though you were a Southerner and you might ideologically be conservative, you would probably still vote, at least for the Senate and the House and local elections, as a Democrat. So, right, we've had a a partisan realignment over the last several decades. And who were these um, internationalist Republicans that actually loom large in the conservative, that is big C history of conservative Republicanism because they are, mm, how to best put it, they are the powers behind the throne that get people <laughs> like, you know, like Eisenhower and Nixon elected. They are actually not not good Republicans, they're bad Republicans. <laughs> so who are these well, Republican right. nationalists? Right, it depends. And, and this is, again, a problem the Republican Party still has today. So in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, the Republican Party was split. So remember, Senator Taft is from Ohio. And Ohio is not unlike it is today as it was then, which is it was a base for manufacturing, obviously, a rusty belt of manufacturing today, a very vibrant place of manufacturing until the late 70s. Those small manufacturers tended to sell their goods in the United States. They did not want free and open markets. They did not want imports at that point from Japan. Now today we'd say maybe from China. So they saw free trade as a problem. They were fierce capitalists, but capitalists only within the United States. If you ran a huge company, uh, General Motors would be a good example. DuPont Company, another good example. These guys were the best in the world at that point in production. They sold goods all over the world. They wanted free trade. They wanted America to make sure that markets stayed open internationally. They were Republican internationalists. Taft was an anti-internationalist. So the Republican Party was split on this fundamental economic question of should the United States be a free trade or a or a far less free trade-oriented country. So the party was split. Obviously, the guys with the biggest money were these internationalists. And they, for example, pushed hard to make sure that Dwight D. Eisenhower, a fellow traveler on the internationalist perspective, became the president of the United States and not Senator Robert Taft. Yeah. And so this is sort of the origin. There's a, there's a kind of stab-in-the-back moment here where these <laughs> – there really is, where they really talk about – you know, people getting together in a sort of smoke-filled room and deciding that uh, you know it was going to be Ike and not Taft, because Taft has presidential ambitions, doesn't he? But they are thwarted at every moment. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Taft wanted to be Ronald Reagan. Only you know he wanted to be Ronald Reagan in 1940, 44, 48, 52. He tried again and again and again to get the Republican nomination. And though he was immensely popular, remember in those days there weren't open primaries. It was all a, basically a closed system in which the politicians would pick their own nominees. He, he couldn't get through the vetting process. Too many of the big moneyed interests in the Republican Party, they saw Taft as a, as a big problem for the kind of economic model they had in their heads. And so they defeated him again and again and again. And, you know, I said there are four boxes, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal – there's probably two more boxes we should put into that matrix, populist and elite. And Taft, ironically, I mean, he actually stood for small capitalist manufacturers. That was his main support. It sort of spoke out as if he were a populist. Obviously, a guy like uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who become the governor of New York and comes from the Rockefeller family, he, he's going to stand for that sort of elite side of the Republican Party who stand shoulder to shoulder with these big corporate interests. So, you know, it's always, again, it's a dynamic process. What is conservatism? You know, it's a moving target. It's something fought over again and again, redefined again and again. So one of the things that we haven't mentioned that I think any follower of modern American conservatism uh, will have noted is religion so far. What did, what, did, mm -hmm. what did Taft think about the role of religion in modern conservatism? And this is more or less a segue into the next figure we'll discuss. That is William Buckley. Mm -hmm. Well, again, you got to 
use your historical imagination here and think about Taft, Roosevelt, the, the major figures of their time. These were guys who really, without much thought, probably would have agreed with what today we'd think of as a, a social conservative viewpoint, which is America is a Christian nation. They took it as a given. It wasn't something that they uh, thought they had to, I don't know, use as a political tool or weapon or uh, a way to rise constituencies. So they thought of themselves that way. Taft was a, a moderately religious, a kind of Episcopalian-like fellow. But he never would have thought that the way to decide a policy was using some sort of religious litmus test. It, again, he's a Harvard-trained lawyer. He's a very pragmatic, rational guy. It, it just never would have occurred to him that that's how you make policy. He was, again, in a, he was a conservative of a very particular kind. He was economically conservative. He hadn't really thought through what other kind of constituencies could be created with a broader understanding of what conservatism could be. So he didn't think, as Buckley does, that there's a kind of moral crisis in the United States. That's right. He, yeah. he didn't think that way. Yes, but Buckley does. Tell us a little bit about Buckley. I think that his story will be a little bit better known, and I think that's largely due to the efforts of William Buckley, <laughs> who yeah, was Buck nothing of a great self-promoter. Buckley self-identified himself as a publicist. It's an old kind of Britishism, which is to say, yeah, he was a smart guy. He probably thought of himself as an intellectual, but above all else, he thought of himself as someone battling for the public mind. And he would use whatever tools he thought most appropriate. And Buckley was a different kind of conservative than Taft. I think he shared almost completely Taft's view that the free market stood not only for uh, a system that maximized profitability and return and assured an efficient distribution of value, but that it was a moral system as well. And it was a moral system because it insisted upon individual responsibility. So he liked that about capitalism. But even more, Buckley would say over and over again, what was most important was that Americans understood the true values that underlay a moral life. And for William Buckley, above all else, those were religious values. He was a very devout Catholic, and he thought that those kinds of religiously inspired virtues underlay what made America great. And so he would fuse, as he famously said, the kind of economic conservatism of the Taft with a social conservatism based on a religious worldview. Yeah, so I, I guess one thing that's of interest to me, would it be false to say that Buckley, we never speak of him like this, but was he a sort of religious fundamentalist? And I don't mean that in any evaluative sense. I mean, does he, would he have said that, you know, the verities of the Bible are truly come from God and should be uh, put in place on... On, on earth in order to make us a better people? Well, you know, really important to make a critical dichotomy here. William Buckley was Catholic. So, you know, he's not reading the Bible the way a Protestant would. Yeah. He's looking to the church for guidance as to what true verities are. So, you know, it's pretty hard to talk about a Catholic fundamentalist. Yeah. But he, he definitely was someone who believed that the truths of the Christian faith were what underlie a virtuous life in the United States. And if any policy or politician was unable to verify their adherence to those virtues, he would, he would find that man probably contemptible, if not simply an enemy of the state. So, you know, it's a different kind of religious test. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, in your book, you, you mentioned that Buckley is actually the fountainhead of, um, no pun intended, many of the sort of fundamental strategies, if not values, of modern American conservatism. You mentioned one of them already, and that is this link between capitalism and religion. Uh, there, there's another. He also begins this trope about all professors being communists. <laughs> Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. He, he probably accepted you and me. But otherwise, yeah, he, he had a lot of suspicion about intellectual elites, and he did so for from his perspective, a perfectly valid point. By certainly the 1950s, when Buckley begins to become a well-known figure in the United States, the academy, universities, had overwhelmingly adopted the perspective that empirical research was the fount of wisdom, that you didn't go to first principles. You didn't look for 
well, certainly not a religious base for the investigations you were making into social science or scientific understandings. And he thought that there was good reason to fear this kind of secularity at the institutions that were really the basis for America's new elites production, right? You go to Yale, you go to Harvard, you go to Amherst, you go to all these fancy schools, and they're teaching you empirical investigations without any precepts based on first principles. Well, you know, he thought this was dangerous. He was a guy who believed that there should be a moral underpinning to how one saw the world. Universities had strayed from that purpose. And remember, in the 19th century, universities were passing along Christian verities. Harvard and Yale were uh, seminaries as much as anything else. And so there had been a massive change by the late 19th century, universities and what they stood for. And Buckley famously denounced the university he had recently graduated from, Yale University, as, as you suggested, being this, this place where the elite young men of America were being trained to become anti-religious and anti-capitalist. And his book became a bestseller. But the guy was, I don't know, you know, in his early 20s when he suddenly became a figure of renown. And he just went off to the races from there. So uh, did he, and, and again, I haven't studied his life, I have to say, would you say that he did, was not a supporter of what we would now call generically liberal education at the university level? He certainly, in the last years of his life, the last couple of decades of his life, he denounced over and over again essentially all the turns humanists had made toward perspectival understandings. In other words, your social position would tell you something about how you saw the world. So he would hate multiculturalism. He hated the changing of the canon in literature classes. He was very suspicious, certainly, of the kind of uh, understanding something like Michel Foucault promulgated, which was that knowledge was just a part of a power structure, that it wasn't discrete from it. Yeah, he, he, he hated a lot of the turns the universities had made, really from the 50s, that he saw intensifying by the 1970s onward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine what a, um, what a William Buckley S. University would look like, and what I come up with is something like Bob Jones University. Am I wrong <laughs> about that? You know, here's goes, this is really one of those fun things to think about when you put those two boxes, elitism and populism, back into the story. I don't know if you can hear William Buckley's voice in your head, but like the guy, the guy sounds like he's stuck on a boat somewhere between England and the United States, right? So he's got this weird upper class accent. You know, I I don't think any of us own that accent anymore. And he obviously was Yale trained. He came from a very wealthy family. He was extraordinarily well read. But he famously said, and we're not sure if he literally said it quite in this way, that he'd rather trust the first thousand names in the Boston phone book than he would the faculty at Harvard University. Yeah. You know, so he's sort of playing to the populace here. Well, at the same time, he's this incredibly erudite, well-spoken man who loved nothing more than using vocabulary words that only you know, 3% of his audience would understand. But he went back and forth. Where does knowledge come from? And here... Edmund Burke kind of comes to mind, the great British philosopher, who had the same kind of faith in the regular folk, but not because he was some kind of Democrat who believed everybody shared an essential wisdom, but because he thought that the folk were sort of, how to put this politely, were stolid. (laughs) They were afraid of change. They liked stability and security. And in that faith in stability and security and tradition and old verities, Buckley thought was hope that this would keep Americans from embracing too much radical change too quickly. So Burke and Buckley share this kind of odd faith in the stolidness of the regular folk. Yeah, you know, he strikes me as a curious kind of intellectual because I don't believe he is very inquisitive. He's clever, Mm -hmm. but he is not very inquisitive. He thinks he already knows the truth. I mean, and there is something to that. You know, I mean, he's kind of the classic hedgehog in that way, I guess. I don't know. But so, yeah, uh, let's no, just... I, I, I agree with you. And I say so in the book that and, and, and in that sense, I say he's never an intellectual. I mean, he's a polemicist. Yeah. He's, he's a guy who believes in first principles and he spends 70 years of his life following them. Yeah, right. So another strategy that I think if I remember from the book uh, that he hits upon or at least he moves the American conservative movement toward is what we, I think, now call the southern strategy because uh, he has some he begins to talk about. Uh, states' rights in the context of desegregation. He does that in the pages of the National Review, does he not? 
And these, yeah. are, these are quotes that are always trotted out by his opponents. He, he, he will never escape these. Um, but I, I kind of <laughs> want to be fair and put them in context. <laughs> well, you know, here's one of the legacies conservatives have to live with and make sense of ever since. They've, I, I argue in the book that in a fundamental way they've been on the wrong side of America's struggle for equality. Most conservatives oppose the civil rights movement. They oppose the women's movement. They oppose today rights for gay people. And they do so sometimes for principled reasons. And I think it's fair to say that for someone like Buckley, it was done not out of racism or prejudice, but out of principle. And for Buckley, local people should determine their own ways of life, right? He was very suspicious of big government intervention. He believed that, again, folk ways, traditions should be, if not sanctified, at least respected. So, you know, in his head, somehow, white Southerners, because of their traditions of how to get around this racism, <laughs> vile white supremacy, yeah. still had some sort of moral ground by which they should be allowed to perpetuate their subordination of their black neighbors. Now, again, this is a pretty fancy tightrope to walk in moral terms, but at least you can understand the logic that lay behind it. Again, I think eventually Buckley came round to the idea that defending white supremacy wasn't the best move he ever made. But I mean, I think it's important to say that, you know, in a kind of a strong, well, I don't know, strong sense, in a sophisticated sense, he was not a racist. That's right. Yeah, he, he was not a racist, and it's not fair to say that he was a racist. You hear this That's right. that, a lot, that, and this gets bandied about a lot, I think, about the Tea Party folks, too, some of whom are just wing nuts, but, you know, I think the, the more intelligent of them are not racist. They, yeah, and I just want to backtrack a little. Buckley, I mean, was incredibly aware of the complexity of his position in that moral sense. In other words, because he came out against federal protection of civil rights for African Americans, he he had fans, he had supporters who were vile racists. Yeah. And he was uncomfortable with that. He, he didn't want those people yeah. to be on his side. Yeah. But on the same time, nor, nor did he stand up and say, you people are wrong and vile and I, I oppose everything you believe in. So, you know, again, he was politically minded and he knew that these supporters, he was correct, could eventually change the fortunes of conservatism in the United States. They were tough bedfellows, but there they were. Yeah. Um, and he also, an, another strategy which I think he can be not exactly credited with, but uh, he certainly does a lot to make part of the American conservative canyon, is really uh, virulent domestic anti-communism. That is the mm -hmm. kind of communism that, or anti-communism that wants to root out American communists, that this is an exception to the rule of political freedom, and it is made on the basis of the supposition that these people are incredibly dangerous to the American way of life. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, I mean, again, it's kind of interesting to think about how you tell a story. I mean, you know, as a working historian, William Buckley would have said civil rights, Ronald Reagan, Phyllis Schlafly, so many of these conservative icons would have said civil rights is, is just not that interesting an issue to me. I, I don't want that to be part of the story of my political philosophy. I'm interested in what you just said. I, I want to make sure that America stays firmly anti-communist and that they root out these dangerous communist presences in the United States. That's the story to tell. And, you know, reading some of my competitors in their histories of conservatism, they'll foreground that movement and essentially ignore some of these very difficult questions about equality in the United States. Because... The, the conservative icons often didn't talk much about them. So again, they're not racist. They're just ignoring these, these massive struggles over racial justice. But you're right. It's anti-communism that certainly motivates William Buckley. And he was very aware, again, of the fragility of the cultural standards that he believed assured that the United States would stand strong and, and morally rigid in, in, in a good sense of the word. So communists were an elastic term for someone like Buckley. And the idea was is that uh, communism would undermine American morality. That was the problem. That, that these policies, for example, New Deal policies, were a step in the direction of something that would undermine kind of fundamental core principles of American civilization. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, some of it comes down to, uh, above all else, holding on to the ideal of independence, that one should be able to pursue one's own at least economic liberty and certainly religious freedom without impingement or infringement from the government. So, I mean, they were very aware of what was happening in the Soviet Union by the 1950s. It was a scary place, not just for 
conservatives, but for most liberals in the United States as well. And they responded with a kind of zealous concern, fear, anxiety that this kind of Soviet-style communism could destroy what they valued most in the United States. So is it fair to say, we're going to move on a little bit now, but is it fair to say that by the time Barry Goldwater becomes a uh, national political figure, that is before that time, that all the people we've been talking about, that is Taft and Buckley and the lot, that they were kind of, uh, they're really a sort of fringe of the Republican Party? Fringe is too strong. Certainly Taft was, you know, he was the head of the Senate. (laughs) He was a Senate majority leader. He was a powerful figure. But there was a war between a kind of moderate or what uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower called the moderate Republican Party and what Taft championed as a conservative party. And Buckley liked to always play the outsider. He was clever, sort of like the Tea Party, sort of like a lot of conservative voices today, that somehow they were a beleaguered few fighting a kind of evil and controlling elite. I mean, there were always powerful conservative factions in the Republican Party. Don't forget Joe McCarthy in the 1950s. But the question was, were they a majority? And Barry Goldwater would put that to the test in the 1964 presidential campaign when he tries to win the Republican nomination. And lo and behold, it seems that they were not a beleaguered minority. Barry Goldwater was able to take on a very conservative platform the Republican nomination. This was a part of the book that um, really uh, allowed the scales to drop from my eyes. I didn't know anything about Goldwater, but he's an absolutely fascinating figure. And uh, he... uh, Really, yeah. I mean, he really is, is something else. Why don't you talk a little bit about his uh, biography and how he um, not only uh, discovered the Southern strategy but made it work a little bit? Yeah, Gold, Goldwater. I mean, you could see him actually operating today. He'd fit just fine in, in probably that Tea Party wing of the conservative movement today. Barry Goldwater grew up in Arizona. He never graduated from college. He was a sort of self-made and self-taught man. On the other hand, he came back from a very wealthy background. His I guess it's his grandfather started what would become the major department store in Phoenix uh, and the largest in all of Arizona. So he had money. He never had to worry about making a living. And he really sort of made his political fortunes by opposing unionization in Arizona. So, you know, kind of a classic Taftian business conservative in that sense. He fought unions. He fought for the rights of business. But he was also a kind of populist figure. He wore a cowboy hat. He wore cowboy boots wherever he went. Uh, He was a genuine kind of tough guy. He flew He flew jets, he flew planes, and he connected with people on a kind of visceral level. And again, like Buckley, he made a decision in the early 60s that he would stand against what was becoming this very controversial civil rights movement. And he became one of the few Republicans in the Senate to actually vote against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And by that time, he did so knowing that that gave him a shot, as he said, to go hunting where the ducks are, to start picking up white Southern voters who had, again, for decades, voted only for Democratic candidates. And so Goldwater represents the beginning of that turn, where white Southerners who are opposed to government intervention into their everyday lives start to think of themselves as conservative Republicans. It's a slow process, but he begins it. Yeah, you tell a story in the book about him uh, being invited to give a speech. I can't remember where, Alabama. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, can mm-hmm. you tell that story? Yeah, so Goldwater, again, was one of these characters who loved to get up in front of a crowd and tell stories and give a speech. And he, he began touring all over the country for the Republican Party, giving speeches. And he's invited this guy from Arizona to give a speech to the tiny Republican Party loyalists in South Carolina, which, again, today we think of as this very conservative Republican state, but was still Democratic then. And he gave a speech, and the head of the Republican Party in South Carolina just you know, was wide-eyed as he listened to this guy, and he realized, oh, my God, here's this guy from Arizona. He speaks the same language as us. States' rights, keep the federal government out of our lives, and clearly was anti-civil rights legislation. So suddenly, Barry Goldwater had some conservative Southern followers. So actually, he gets the um, Republican presidential nomination. This must been, have been, at the time, thought to be quite a revolution. What did people say about it when he got the nomination? Yeah, well, remember, as, you, as we talked about earlier, for several election cycles already, this kind of East Coast Republican international big-moneyed interest had controlled the Republican Party nomination process. And Goldwater had really taken it to the people. He ran a campaign based on the idea of winning primaries, not backroom deals, 
but showing the party bosses that he could win states, and he wins famously the state of California in their open primary, and demonstrates, yeah, people like this guy. They like his conservative viewpoint. They like what he's saying. And he manages to pull out just enough delegates to win the nomination. And a lot of the old loyalists in the Republican Party, especially from the Northeast, were like, who is this guy? And some of them, there's famous conversations where they kind of look at each other and go like, I don't know who any of these people in the room are. You know, there's a bunch of yahoos coming from all over the country wearing funny clothes, not business suits, taking over our party. Yeah. And, and then Goldwater, of course, gets creamed in the 64 election. And these old country club and well-to-do Republicans basically do everything in their power to divest the party of this wild, new, populist, conservative element. I mean, they do a pretty good job of it because at that time, uh, these were the darkest days, I suppose, for this uh, this branch of the Republican Party of, of, Ameri- of sort of socially conservative American uh, American That's conservatives. Right. Yeah, these these were. I think this was the nadir for them. They, I don't know. It, it certainly were, looked electorally like the nadir, and again, that's what's interesting. At the same time, they built up now for the first time a kind of political network that hadn't existed before. You said before, where was Taft kind of a voice in the wilderness? Well. Not completely, but there was no national conservative movement. Barry Goldwater, despite losing, and losing badly, helps to create a conservative grassroots political network that will never disappear and slowly and surely rises up and makes sure that Ronald Reagan in 1980 will become the nominee of their party and and win the presidential election. And and now we get to move on to uh, one of my favorite people, certainly one of the most impressive American, I guess, politicians of all time, and that is Phyllis Schlafly, who, uh, I, 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 you know, when I think of Phyllis Schlafly, I, I think like I'm reading Machiavelli or something. Like she, she, has, she, she had absolutely indestructible instincts, and they were almost perfect. And um, she is, uh, she's kind of a badger. She, you know, she sinks her teeth into something and will not let go. And, and also, she's, she's very erudite. She's, she's a, a smart person, and She's full of contradictions, and uh, yeah, I, mean, I just find her a remarkable person. Why don't you tell us a little bit about her? Uh, she she is a remarkable. Yeah. She is a remarkable woman. I mean, really, the the first lady of conservatism for at least thirty years. I mean, at least thirty years. And if Barry Goldwater was maybe not the sharpest knife in the drawer, Phyllis Schlafly. I mean, I, I don't know what her IQ is, but she's yeah. a very, very <laughs> intelligent yeah. person, a yeah. very capable woman who could have done just about anything she wanted, undoubtedly, and, and did, I guess. So Schlafly kind of comes out of nowhere. She doesn't come from an elite background. She doesn't come with all that cultural capital. She makes herself. And from an early age, uh, like Buckley in some ways, by her 20s, she knows she's a conservative and begins to figure out what that means and what to do with it. And she is at first sort of one of these ferocious polemicists about the anti-communist movement. She's also a very religious woman, a Catholic woman, who comes at anti-communism essentially from that perspective. And quickly rises up into the Republican um, sort of back room hierarchy. She becomes a, a champion of the Illinois Republican women's movement and champions Goldwater. But after Goldwater, she starts to get uh, thrown out of the party like so many other conservative activists. And she's not quite sure what to do with herself. And it's a great story of accident, which is somebody writes her. She has a little newsletter she puts out. They don't have tweets. They don't have (laughs) any efficient way to do it. She's like cranking out a mimeograph machine essentially, and she's got about a 1,000 people who listen to what she has to say. And one of her followers says, you know, there's this new thing called the Equal Rights Amendment that's running ripshot through the United States, and I don't think this is a good thing from a conservative perspective. And Schlafly, with her high-beam IQ, kind of – looks through the ERA and figures out, in her mind, why it's bad for America. And she kind of dashes off a polemic against it, which has brought, I think it's Utah at that point. I'm trying to remember which state it is. And one of her followers hands it out to every legislator in the state house. Remember, this is an amendment to the Constitution. It has to go through the states and get ratified. And they read this thing. It's one of the few times in the world, perhaps, where politicians actually read something and changed yeah. their minds. And they said, well, yeah, this is wrong. This is bad. And it's, it's going to hurt women in the United States. And Schlafly becomes a champion of the anti-ERA, anti-feminist, anti-women's liberation movement, sort of by accident. Again, she's this fierce anti-communist. And she begins to devote herself to rolling back 
the amendment process for the Equal Rights Amendment and does so with verve and vitality and, well, great talent. And you can make a pretty good case that it's Phyllis Schlafly and her followers, she creates a huge movement, that single-handedly destroy the Equal Rights Amendment's passage in the United States. And suddenly you have a new piece of conservatism, the maintenance of the traditional family, yeah. traditional American values. Now here's a kind of new language and a new understanding of what conservatism should be politically in the U.S. And that's what Phyllis Schlafly brings to the party. And it's a very important part of the political appeal of conservatism for a lot of Americans who, who see these new social changes as being detrimental to their interests. I mean, I think it's important to understand the m magnitude of her particular insight about the ERA, because as you say in the book, had you asked anyone um, prior to this newsletter incident and the Utah incident if the ERA would fail to pass very quickly, they almost certainly would have said no. Yeah, I mean, because again, everybody think, supported this thing. Yeah, and both, again, Republicans and Democrats, all liberals and many conservatives supported it. The, the Mormon Church at first supported the ERA. Again, on the face of it, all it says is that women and men should be treated equitably before the law in all regards. It, it doesn't sound very radical or controversial. But what Schlafly argued was this would be incredibly dangerous to the sanctity of the home. It well, would, it would make... Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. What is the actual... Because I mean, the, the arguments are, are very clever, and I think that they are... Um, given the fact that most of what the ERA wanted to do has been done by other means, that it's very difficult to reconstruct an argument against it. I mean, I was, I was talking to my wife last night about it, and, and, you know, I was having trouble... I hadn't read that part of the book yet, and I was, I was having trouble understanding exactly why she opposed it, but then I went back up to my room and read the rest of it, and I think <laughs> I understood. Uh, what, what did she actually say about it? What was her... What was the... What were the principles of her opposition? Well, th there were a few pieces, and they're all compelling in some ways. Remember, this is going on right at the tail end of the war in Vietnam. The war is almost over, but not quite when this is happening. And she says, do you understand, Americans, that under this law, men and women would be drafted to fight for the United States? That there could be no distinction between the two. So women will have to go to battle and probably die if they fight. Again, you know, you can make a case, well, maybe that's okay. But it, for most Americans at the time, that was shocking. Oh, my gosh, my little girl would have to go serve in the military? That was a winning argument. There were some really practical arguments. She said, right now, if a woman and a man get divorced, the likelihood is that the man would have to support the woman through alimony, child support, and other means. Under the Equal Rights Amendment, women would not necessarily be entitled to alimony or child support. Again, in this case, she was, she was probably right. It would be which parent could best support things. and you know, It would be economic. It wouldn't be gendered in its decision-making. She also made a, a, a less practical and more emotive argument, which was this amendment overwhelmingly will ratify a society in which men don't in any ways have to protect, defer, protect, look after women. It's going to change the biblically inspired or biblically mandated tradition in the United States that it's men's job to protect women in all ways. And the ERA will overthrow thousands of years of tradition. So, you know, at a cultural level, at this kind of political military level, and at an economic level, she had these like three tacks that she took. And, you know, a lot of Americans responded to those tacks. Again, I stress a large majority of Americans still wanted to pass the ERA. If it had come to a referendum vote in the United States, it would have passed. But remember, you have to get two-thirds of the states to ratify. And there were enough conservative states where it didn't make it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, my, uh, my wife wanted to know how Schlafly <laughs> responded to people that called her a hypocrite. Because on the one hand, she <laughs> said, everybody wants to know this. On the one hand, you, she does have six kids. That's true. Uh, she is a homemaker, but she also has this incredible career. And here she is seemingly telling women that their place is in the home, raising the uh, next generation of uh, good Republican American-valued <laughs> children. So how, well, how did she respond to those people? She, she would say that always the first priority should be to the family. So she would say, I've always looked after my children. I breastfed all my children. I feed my children. I overwhelmingly put my family first. 
Now, the fact that I have an incredible intelligence, energy, and ability means that I still have another eight hours in the day to write and to uh, go speaking and do these polemicals. And, and, you know, that's how she squared that circle. So she never said women should not be able to do other things. What she would insist upon always was that their first duty was to their family. And she often said early days, she, she changed her tune over time, that her husband approved of her doing these things. Her husband said it was okay for her to do these things. Eventually that kind of uh, rhetoric disappeared when it, so many women were doing so many things by the 80s and 90s. Well, yeah, no, again, I find her just an amazing, uh, really an amazing figure because it seems like she, I, I wondered whether she ever slept because <laughs> she just did everything. You know, I mean, I have young kids and I, I can't get anything done. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, just a truly remarkable person. So uh, let's move on to uh, someone whom everyone will know a lot more about, and that is Ronald Reagan, who also makes his bones, uh, as many of these people have, as an anti-communist. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. So, so one of the things I try to get across in the book is that there's a, there's a kind of accretion process here. So it isn't like each of these figures has to reinvent conservatism. They're building off each other's successes. And Ronald Reagan, when he runs for the presidency in 1980, he's already been obviously the governor of California for two terms. He's been a popular speaker in the United States for uh, better than two decades by that time. You know, he's, he's learning from these other figures. He's, he's multiplying their constituencies, and he's building on what they've already kind of put into place for a movement conservatism. In other words, I don't know that a Ronald Reagan would have done any better in 1964 than a Barry Goldwater did. But by 1980, he's got new constituencies, He's got new institutional foundations, and he's got new kind of rhetorical tax to play with. He also has the fact that the U.S. economy is in free fall in 1979 and 1980. There's been an oil shock. There's hostages taken in Iran. So he's got a great political environment to operate in. And, you know, again, let's face it, Ronald Reagan is a spectacularly good politician. So individuals matter. It isn't like any conservative would have won the presidency in 1980. Ronald Reagan's a spectacularly good candidate. And he brings to conservatism, I said, also one particularly important new tactic, which was he was not a fear monger. He was not someone just preaching about all the dangers and scary enemies the United States faced, whether internal or domestic. He had that, you know, famous, it's morning in America again. We're a shining city upon a hill. He brought a kind of optimism and positive face to conservatism that probably no other major figure had ever been able to deploy, let alone deploy so successfully. So special person, special time with a huge constituency already built in. Mm-hmm. And uh, how, did, how was he able to craft this, this positive image? Because one of the points that you drive home in the book, was it simply the force of his personality? You point out that, um, I don't know about Taft, but uh, Buckley was a rather peculiar guy. A friend of mine used to call him Lizard Man because he looked like a lizard. Uh, Goldwater was a kind of an angry guy, and, and Schlafly was a you know, sort of finger-wagging school marmot. But, but Reagan, you know, was a really positive, sort of sunny personality, and, and, uh, and he, he seemed to be able to change the character of this from, from fear to hope. How did he do that? Well, he had an interesting tactic, he, and it's one that I think has been repeated now for 30 years. He essentially argued that the American people were good, that the American people had tremendous capacity, and that all that had to be done was to essentially unleash all that talent, ability, discipline, and capacity. And so it was the American people good and some other forces bad that were constraining them. And that force overwhelmingly was the government. We just heard this turned against Obama and the Democrats in this last election. That the people of the United States, if they could only be let alone, would restore things to the way they should be. And so, you know, that's a kind of optimistic lesson. People good, government bad. So emphasize the positive. I believe in you, he would say over and over again. Uh And and I mean, it worked worked really wonderfully in terms of uh, mobilizing a a vast array of people with different beliefs, uh, which I I think he did. So um, why don't we move on then to, uh, you have a lot of fascinating things to say about George W. Bush. What what is your take on him? And this, you call this the crack-up of American modern American conservatism. It certainly looked like that until a few days ago. Well, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, I, you know, it's still too... Right. We, it's still we can revisit sell. that. Yeah. All, right. all right. Well, I, I think what George Bush is different than all the other people I've talked about in the book. And I think what made Bush so fascinating was that his conservatism was essentially inherited. 
In other words, all these other figures in the book develop a conservative vision. They're, they're innovators. They're creators of conservatism. I keep saying it's a moving target. They're trying to find a vision that will appeal to the American people. Bush essentially figures he's inherited a conservative movement. He's inherited the mantle of a Ronald Reagan. And so he doesn't have quite the same kind of policy gyroscope that most of these other figures have. So I think it makes him a more malleable kind of conservative. And what I found so fascinating is when you read the speeches he used to run both in the primaries and then in the general election, he just says over and over again, I am a conservative. <laughs> it's like, vote for me because I am a conservative. What that really meant, he, he could kind of almost not explain because it had become a brand name by the year 2000 in the United States. And obviously the election results of 2000 show you know, it, it, it wasn't necessarily a majoritarian view, but it was close enough, I guess, to win the election. Yeah. <laughs> and when Bush then becomes president, his policy vision is unformed, and he's, he's, uh, he's open to, to, to facing the events before him and different kinds of interpretations. And that's why I thought it was so fascinating to try to watch the foreign policy development of a George Bush and try to find a trajectory for it. And you, you, you can't easily find it. So George Bush runs, for example, by saying nation building is a very bad idea. It's what liberals do. They think that sort of liberal universalism can be applied around the world. And he says, no, it takes special traditions. It takes special long-standing understandings of how the world works. You know, he's a traditional conservative in that sense, Burkean. But by the time he becomes president and all hell breaks loose after 9-11, he's open to change. So, you know, so ironically enough. George Bush becomes the greatest nation-building president, perhaps since Woodrow Wilson. And, you know, we see how that's turned out. So I think Bush tried to make conservatism a very malleable term. He believed that conservatives could use the power of the state and the power of the government to exercise control. And, you know, in my opinion, it, it blew up in every sector of the American political arena, from domestic politics to the economy to our international role. And it sort of looked in 2008 like the American people thought so as well, that we needed more regulation, we needed more restraint on our military bellicosity, that we needed to rethink the safety net as it existed for the American people. And ergo, this kind of rudderless conservatism of George Bush causes this 40-year experiment in identifying conservative principles to implode and opens the door for Barack Obama. So is this a failure of... Uh, modern American conservatism, or is it a failure of George W. Bush? Well, you know, we're, we're still trying to think about that. I, I certainly think that you can blame Bush as a guy who was ill-prepared to exercise with discipline some set of policy prescriptions or ideals. You know, he was much more flexible, and in that way was a more typical politician. But I also think that conservatives had, for the first time, realized, wow, we run the state. We run the government. So what would that mean for us? How do we implement the policies that we've long been talking about? And governing, as this new House uh, Republican Party will find out, is, is way different than trying to campaign or, or naysay. Bush tried to be a positive force for conservatism. That kind of positive conservatism, or what some have called big government conservatism, seemingly the record is didn't work we'll, we'll see we'll see as you're suggesting can conservatives find a positive governing agenda that they're still looking yeah before i ask you about um the recent elections i want to ask you the following question should we admire uh, all or most of these people well we can admire them as successful operators in the american political system uh, i say at the end of the book that i think that there's there's some pluses and some minuses for this conservative ascendancy I, it strikes me as someone who does believe in the fundamental equality of the American citizenry, regardless of race, sex, or gender preference, that conservatives were on the wrong side of history. Each and every one of these individuals was on the wrong side of history. If we believe in equality, these people believed that inequality was acceptable. That seems like a pretty damning indictment. On the other hand, I think that somewhere in the 1970s, liberals had lost their way in political economy issues. The United States was floundering, and that... Conservatives had a good insight that we had to figure out ways to make the capitalist system work better. We had to unleash productivity. 
And so there's a lot that Ronald Reagan and ironically Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton did that could be put under the label of conservative economic policy that worked pretty well. You know, there were problems, but it worked pretty well. In terms of international policy, I think conservatives have a, a, have a less good record. Their emphasis on militarism and bellicosity, you can make a pretty good case, has cost America more than it's gained. That's a complicated argument, but when we look at the rise of China, Brazil, India, and other countries around the world, we, we might consider that we emphasize sometimes the wrong enemies and the wrong strategies for keeping America strong and prosperous. I mean, I think one of the things, I'm, I'm a reasonably conservative person myself, I guess I would say. I think anybody who stu- studies the uh, Soviet Union ends up that way. <laughs> um, but I, I know that uh, beginning with Clinton, I was always very pleased with Democratic presidents because they seem to be Republican presidents, if you see what I mean. And I think that's really come to the fore uh, with Obama in a way. He's a, by, I think, I, I, this, this speaks a little bit to my generation. I mean, I, mean, I was a kid during the Vietnam War, but he seem, doesn't seem terribly liberal to me. Uh, you know, especially in terms of his economic policies and things like this. But uh, so it seems like that the that this strain of American conservatism has pushed the Democratic Party pretty far to guess what we'd call generically the right. Am I right about that? Well, again, on economic issues, yeah, on economic I think conservatives issues, yes. conservatives have had the better part of the argument for the last at least since the 1960s. You can make a pretty good case that when America faced few international competitors in the 1960s that it was a pretty good time to try to invest in, in those who were less uh, able to take advantage of the free market. You know, that, that was a reasonable thing to do, start spending more money on schooling, on higher education, on creating an infrastructure. It was a good time to do it. You could make a pretty good case when America faced fierce economic competition that you had to figure out ways to essentially take advantage of the free market as best you could. You know, that, that, that's where I'm coming out on this. So, yeah, I mean, I'm probably economically moderate to conservative. But as you heard me say before, on social issues, I probably don't have much comfort to take from the conservative movement. Yeah, because in a certain way, your, your answer to my question as to whether we should respect these people surprises me a little bit, because from my reading of the book, it seems you're very, let me put it this way, I won't put words in your mouth, but you're very even-handed about mm-hmm. them. You really are. You give them their due. I mean, you also at certain points call them liars and things, but I always appreciate that. <laughs> you know, politicians lie about half the time. And so it, that's true. But it, it does seem to me that you do a really good job of uh, taking the measure of their achievement. Yeah, and for better and for worse, I'm not a polemicist. No, you know, I, no, you I, I try a, to yeah. be an empirical historian right, and tell and, the tale. And these were impressive people. They, you know, they, they, were, they did stuff. And uh, yes. we've got to give them that due. So talk just a little bit about these recent elections. You know, so the Republicans, um, uh, I don't want to say they swept, but they, uh, they, they sort of, they've taken the House and close to the Senate, and uh, I don't know, Barack, is he going to be reelected, that kind of thing? What do you mm-hmm. think this means for uh, the seeming decline of modern American conservatism? I, I think, again, people talk about a wave election. We, we've, we've been swept back and forth so fast by yeah. two waves, it's hard to know what to make of it, except that Americans are very anxious about their economic predicament. they got really good reason to be anxious about their economic predicament, especially in, I live in Pennsylvania and neighboring states of Ohio. We don't have a real good answer for how to get, I don't know, the old sort of successful working class dutifully employed and making reasonable amounts of money. So, you know, we're in that position. Who's got the answers for that right now? Nobody really knows. And that's the political situation we're in right now. Can the Republicans perform? Can they find some answers? Can conservatives give us solutions? Well, they're going to have a couple years to try. I I think we're going to be in gridlock for the next two years. I think the economy, we had 150,000 jobs last year. It might be cyclical. I think if Barack Obama can point to a 7% unemployment rate, he'll get reelected. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think you're right. One interesting thing is that here in Iowa, we, I think we have the lowest unemployment in the United States, and still the Republicans got mm-hmm. killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I yeah, mean, Democrats. Democrats got killed. Yeah. So, it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's something more going on. Also, we unseated some judges, which we haven't done in yeah. forever. I mean, that really odd. Well, that's the social issues again, which we thought we were putting behind us, but clearly still rankles a lot of Americans. Yeah, I I bet my wife my my last dime that we wouldn't do that, but they did. and I'm Mm -hmm. quite surprised about that. So it was was certainly very interesting. So, well, anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I I could go on like this forever uh, because I learn a lot. I don't read the paper very much because I have young kids, so talking to you is (laughs) much better than reading the paper. Uh, Let me ask you our traditional final question, David, on new books in history, and that is what are you working on now? 
Well, you know, maybe it makes perfect sense from what we've been talking about. I've gotten more and more interested in capitalism in the United States. It's another thing historians don't write probably enough about, which is how did capitalism become so inscribed and in so many ways successful in the United States. So I'm writing a book about a fellow named John Raskob who helped run DuPont, General Motors, and then ran the Democratic Party in the 1920s and built the Empire State Building. So it's a, real, it's a study of a capitalist, one of the great capitalists in the United States. So it's a biography? It's a biography. I, you know, I was going to hope you were going to write a biography because each one of the – I've said this ten times now, and again, I'm not just trying to flatter you. These are terrific little vignettes, so I would, I'd love to see a whole, you know, whole book-length treatment because you have a, a knack for biography. And we'll have you on the show when you get it done, okay? Se- September of next year. That sounds great. All right. Well, we've been talking to David Farber about his book, The Rise and Fall of Modern American Conservatism. Uh, and, uh, David, I just want to say thank you for being on the show. been a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with David Farber about his new book, The Rise and Fall of Modern American Conservatism, A Short History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.